0: Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy you could join us today, and we've got some wonderful contributors lined up to, to share their take on current events around the world. We want to start today by introducing you to Benita Ezumizu. Uh, she is uh, checking in with us from Nigeria, and uh, Benita, first of all, congratulations and, and welcome to uh, the Young Voices uh, contributors team. Would you tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: All right. All right. Um, good. Hello, hello. It's evening right here. My name is Benita Izumezu. I'm from Nigeria and it is past six. It is six oh five currently in Nigeria. And um I currently work with Citizens Common Advocacy International. And what is Citizens Common? Citizens Common is a nonprofit that is committed to empowering everyday citizens to taking social action targeted at solving big and small problems it doesn't matter how little but we are just um, committed to empowering citizens to take that action and we um we also um collaborate with um we focus on innovation um, collaboration and technology i also manage the impact central social innovation hub it is one of the it is the only social innovation hub in abuja Nigeria. I manage jobs. I'm also a researcher, I'm a writer. I focus in technology, public policy, and human rights. And then I'm a contributor for Young Voices. Thank you very much for having me here today.
0: Wonderful, and we have we have a terrific article that you have written about how technology can address gender inequality in Africa. Um, Benita, before we begin on, on the, the article, though, I'd like you to help me understand. Uh, the information age has changed things so much just within my own lifetime here in America. Tell me a little bit about how the information age has affected Africa. What kind of changes have you seen because of technology?
1: Okay, I would say thank you very much for that question. Um, I would say I've seen a lot of changes, a lot of changes in Africa. You could see how people are now more interested in technology because of what it has done. It has, um, you know, better, you know, it has contributed to the growth of the economy. It has contributed to the growth of Africa. It has increased collaboration. It has increased, it has also advanced um, opportunities for women. It has increased economic progress. And there are so many um, um, benefits that um, that technology has improved in Africa. You know, from the skills that a lot of Africans um, um, have been able to learn, we can notice that through these skills, it has benefited women towards tech and also towards improving their, you know, Improving our self-confidence, a lot of times people don't have the confidence because they feel like, oh, tech is for men and tech is, um, most men are, you know, they easily um, assimilate or learn faster than women. And then so because of that, they feel like they are not good enough and they don't have the knowledge or the, the capacity to actually understand it because they feel it is very technical. So, you know, the few people that have been able to come out to learn, to go into tech, have been able to, you know, mentor these new um, females that are scared to go into tech as a result because of the fear like, oh, it's too difficult. But these few women that have gone into tech, I will take a cue from Ife Oluwa from um, Toronto. She is the health tracker. She initially from her story, she was scared like, oh, okay, how can go into this very because, and then she discovered that right there in Canada is um, health systems is not very easy so what about Africa that had a lot to do she needed to do something and then she did it and she went out and then she told a lot of people about it and she made it she made it um, known to people that tech is not just for men female can also venture in tech and also improve it um, can also improve um um, I would say self confidence in females, and then I would also say that in, um, for women, I know that tackling gender gap has been able to boost our global GDP. So to, according to my uh, McKinsey, McKinsey Global Institute, by 2025, if we're able to ta- currently tackle the current gender gap, we'll be able to boost our global GDP by 12 million. And wow. I'm sure that those African leaders have seen that the um, support and the constant mentorship and the trainees and the opportunities that have been made accessible to to um, females have been able to increase technology. Has been able to increase access to you know in techno. Um, technology has a lot of um, things, and then we notice that a lot of it's not being maximized. We're not maximizing the um, the entire. Um, process because we have just we have a lot of work to do in tech but we have limited um, manpower limited, limited human power because we're focusing on male but now that leaders have seen that even females can even use this and um, gen- this tech to even monitor gender-based violence online they could create apps that could monitor gender-based violence they could also create apps that could you know speak to women to understand exactly what we are or what we are facing If you're making policy and you're making, it's it's not going to be very clear. So when you get policies to understand exactly how, you know, you feel like, okay, this can work, she's a woman, she's better understanding of how a woman feels, of how she feels not smart, basically in Africa, most African women, we feel like, oh, we have a lot to do, and then we feel not smart, we feel like we don't have the competencies, we feel like we're not. But the fact that lots of programs have been put in place, it has increased the capacity, the number of women in tech. And I would say yes, um, I think tech has really improved with the with the gap that has that has taken place with the trainings and opportunities for females. Thank you very much.
0: Benita, tell me about uh, gender inequality. Even before technology started opening these new doors, um, there, was, there was gender inequality that, that was perhaps uh, part of, of, of the culture um, in, in some places. Tell me about how, how that um, has affected opportunities for women today, and how can, how can that cultural, uh, c- those cultural beliefs be overcome to, to open the door to greater uh, gender equality?
1: Okay, thank you very much for that question. So, um, I would say, I would start by saying that there is, it's a background cultural belief, there is this belief that females have little to contribute to a society, because they're supposed to be, especially um, in Africa, there is this belief that females have little to contribute, so they would rather take destruction from the males and they don't have um, a lot of things to contribute. And you know, this has really caused a lot of, um, this actually killed the second of women, if they feel like they should be able to teach them and from, the male, um, from their male, the male counterparts. So I think that a lot of times, what what we focus on in Africa is the fact that females are not being considered opportunities. They don't have equal opportunities to um, ask a male. In Africa, you would see um, I wouldn't really say in Africa, I think it's in a lot of places. It's in it's global. We hear people talk about how there right. is disparity in the workplace, there is gender imbalances in the in, in environment, in the society, in schools, and then you see that better opportunities to, you know. To ask, you see, okay. Recently, I know that something happened, and then we, because a woman has a better qualification than a man, but because she's a lady, she is not considered as competent as a man. And then all of those things come into play, and then because as a result of that, she um, that are put that are really considered in Africa, and then you know. But the fact that women have been, have been able to stand up and be able to speak for themselves to understand that um, they could do this the same way these men do. They could do it and then they could do it. And when women put, a lot of their mind, it, they put their mind into something, they do it very well. They do it very well. So they've been able to understand that when, when women speak up, they're able to support all the just And up. It's being able to you know, contribute to the agenda and probably help close it. Yes. Right. I I or that technology is is um um how do I okay, you know, it's with technology it's easier for women to be able online, to go online and speak exactly, see exactly how they feel about certain situations and how it can be addressed because it's coming from a woman and how it gets a place for other women to also, you know, understand and also, you know, I think that's it. Yeah. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Again, we are talking with Benita Azumizu. She is uh, a Young Voices contributor and also uh, an African Liberty Writing Fellow. And uh, Benita, I- I'm sure that there are people who would like to follow your work. Um, where can they find your articles? Where would they find them published? Okay, um, I have a few
1: articles on the Youth Action Platform. Then you can link Benita Izumi you on LinkedIn, and then I have a few other articles for this part.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate you being my guest. I hope we get to talk again soon.
1: All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on your show.
0: Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are happy to welcome Donald Kimball to the show. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Donald, take just a minute here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, would you please?
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. My name is Donald Kimball. I work for Washington Policy Center. We are a nonprofit think tank based in Washington state. And we take a look at the issues involving Washington state, mostly uh, fiscal policy type things ways we can help make the state a better place to live. And I've been with WPC for a number of years now, uh, and it's been a pleasure. They're a great organization.
0: Well, I, I'm glad to, to get to meet you. I'm from your neighboring state of Idaho, and so I pay close attention to what happens uh, next door. Um, <laughs> we
2: look on jealously of you often. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I, your, your article about uh, Governor Inslee lied about the cost of the carbon cap and trade program. This one hit home because I'm feeling pain every time I go to fill up my car. Um, talk to me a little bit about, what the carbon cap and trade program is. What On what basis was it sold to the public?
2: Yeah. So the background on this is pretty interesting because I want to say it was in 2018, it may have been around then, there was an initiative to the voters in order to try to pass some kind of a carbon tax. And this was rejected by the voters. They did not want to pay more for things like gasoline. And so in 2021, the legislature decided to ignore the will of the voters and pass one anyway, just through legislative means instead of through the will of the people by a vote. And so then the program wasn't set to actually sort of take effect until January 1 of this year. And what the program does is it follows California's footstep of their kind of cap and trade system where you put a cap on the number of emission carbon emissions that can be output by washington state and then there are auctions that allow you to buy these credits for allowing individual companies to output certain emissions there's a joke that any bad policy california puts in place washington is 10 years behind (laughs) and it seems we have done kind of the same thing here so Because of this, the the goal of this policy is to reduce the number of emissions by this cap. And when you reduce the number of emissions that you're going to create, you necessarily increase the cost. So this is kind of the goal of the policy from the beginning. And so it was very weird when leading up to the implementation of this, we ran some calculations, we said, okay, this program is going to cost about $0.45 cents, Was were our projections, and then we started hearing denials from government officials and advocacy groups about it having an impact, which was very odd.
0: Wow. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Look, it's, it's, the, it's a classic case of, okay, we, we want to discourage, for instance, uh, consumption of fossil fuels, but if you're willing to pay, Hey, hey! You know we'll provide a way for you, and I can't imagine that uh, this does anything but help drive the costs up for those for those businesses or those uh, those sectors of industry that buy the credits. That cost is still going to get passed on to the consumer in the end, isn't it?
2: Absolutely right, and that's exactly what every person who's advocated for the policy recognized. So, when we started hearing claims from the governor specifically, he said this program will have minimal impact. pennies was his quote. He said, minimal impact, if any pennies, which, you know, technically speaking, 45 pennies is pennies. It is just a lot of pennies. And it it was very confusing to us because the entire point of the bill is to increase the price of gas because you want to make it less desirable. Uh, This was not even that controversial. Um, Severin uh, Borenstein was the one of the people who helped create the program for California and he did the exact same calculation that our uh, researcher Todd Myers did which you know he kind of Todd Myers looked in depth looked at the numbers coming from the department of ecology themselves He looked at those numbers, he ran the calculations based on what we've seen in California, and came up with 45 cents. Severin Borenstein, who had created this program in California, or helped create it, he did the same thing and said it's it's beyond controversy that this is gonna raise the price, that's the intended effect. An advocacy group called Climate Solutions also said that this was part of the intended effect. But once you get closer to the actual costs being implemented, you see things like climate solution saying it's oil company greed the mm. department of ecology they went back on their website which had said that this uh, program would not impact gas prices very much they erased it they removed it completely and you can only find it now by going on the internet Wayback machine pulling it up saying they're trying to cover their evidence so at every level they've tried to you sort of have their cake and eat it too where they say you know, we're going to save the planet by reducing emissions, by making it more expensive. And then once people see, oh, this is actually going to hurt and cost something, they say, no, that's greedy oil companies. And then they'll lie inside about those uh, stats, too, which even happened after this article was written, which was pretty crazy.
0: Wow. How frustrating. I mean, its I guess it's not unexpected, but still, you know, okay, you got one past us. Talk to me about some of the potential solutions um, because of this. I, I'm sure the people aren't just gonna sit back and, oh, well, I guess, what can we do? Just keep on paying this. What are some of the things that uh, that are working in favor of uh, discouraging this kind of uh, behavior on, on the part of politicians?
2: Yeah, certainly. I think, ultimately, we have to keep politicians accountable to these things. It's pretty striking to me that even in Washington state, which is known for being pretty environmentally conscious, even on its voter base, you know, in 20, again, I think it was 2018 voters did reject this kind of a carbon tax and then politicians went ahead and voted it in anyway and are trying to lie about these costs to say it's not their fault. Um, So I think that the, the first step is really making people aware one, that this is the intended result of this policy Two, that the politicians ignored your will. And then three, you know, in a democratic system that we're in, you, you kind of have to rely on voters to hold politicians accountable. One of the things that we often joke about is, you know, politicians lie all the time and it's just kind of taken for granted. Yep. But when we reward this behavior by reelecting them and letting them grandstand on these environmental claims, then you reward that behavior and you incentivize them to lie when there, there's no punishment. Uh, a columnist for the Seattle Times, who is a supporter of this tax, was admitted that raising the cost of gasoline and, and energy and those kinds of things was the intended effect, but kind of justified it by saying, you know, w- would we ever have passed this kind of bill if the costs were known? And to me, that's just a very bad wow. way to govern, a deceptive way to govern, to, to say to people, you know, we can get the good result we want, we just have to deceive everyone about it, and then we'll get that. That's sort of an ends justify the means uh, political theory, which I don't think is great. And, and what I will say, I wanna, I wanna add in, the ends being justified here aren't even that great. Uh, my research uh, partner, well, not my partner, my, my coworker, the, our Center for Environment researcher, uh, Todd Myers, points out that when they are pitching the, the benefits of this cap and trade program, the emissions being reduced, they don't actually cite how much reduction will happen in Washington state. They look at global numbers. They try to cite things out of like Thailand and you know if, if these kinds of programs get enacted globally, meaning that they won't actually tell you the benefit because it's so small. And when you raise wow. the prices on gasoline, that raises the prices, well, on carbon emissions specifically, that raises the prices on gasoline, on energy, on food production, all these things that disproportionately hurt lower income and medium income individuals and families. So what's frustrating is that not only are they lying about the program, they're grandstanding on results they won't even tell you about at the opportunity cost of the people on the very who can very uh, least afford it. So it's a frustrating, system of them lying, pretending to take credit for something, and then trying to diffuse all the blame onto, again, quote, gr- greedy oil companies, uh, which there is no evidence of that actually being the case.
0: Man, Donald, that that just raised my blood pressure a couple of points, <laughs> hearing about that. And it's because I, I think of it in these terms. If, if if it's a policy worth having, it's a policy that's worth uh, putting in place with full transparency and, and not needing to keep things in the dark and manipulate people in order to get it. And we, I don't think, I can't think of any other place we would tolerate that kind of behavior, you know, especially in the private sector, would you do business with a business that you knew was shady, but they're doing it for your own good? I can't, I, I <laughs> That's certainly exactly wouldn't. exactly right. All right. Let's, uh, we're, we're down to about 45 seconds here. Um, is it likely voters are going to, uh, to enact some safeguards to, you know, to rein in this kind of behavior or are they kind of stuck in a pattern and, and just going to go with the flow as they've done?
2: You know, it's, it's difficult to predict. We'll see. Um, We hope that there is some kind of, you know, countermeasure to this to help alleviate that. One of the simple ways is, if the legislature wants to help address this, is reducing some of our more regressive taxes, such as cutting our sales tax, or even cutting our gas tax, which was already one of the highest in the country. So, even if they wanna keep this program, which we think should be, you know, drawn back, um, there, there are ways that you can help alleviate costs for, for lower income people, and hopefully voters will uh, pursue some of those options.
0: Okay, again, we are talking with Donald Kimball. He's a contributor for Young Voices as well as the Communications Manager at Washington Policy Center. Where can people find you on social media?
2: Yeah, you can find me. I have a personal account on Twitter at Kimbledonald. Um, that is a mix of personal and private. So if, if you like seeing weird, uh, you know, personal anecdotes, maybe some gaming stuff, I'm there. But definitely check out our work at washingtonpolicy.org. That's where we keep most of our up to date news.
0: Welcome back. This is moving forward with young voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Ryan Burkaw back to the program. Ryan, for some people, this is going to be their first time getting to know you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do.
3: Well, hi everybody. I'm Ryan Burkaw. based out of Washington, DC. I'm a freelance policy nerd that publishes a lot of op-eds on East Asian foreign affairs. Um, I've got about 10 years total experience with the Department of Defense. I've spent five years in the Marines and uh, really into China.
0: And it's a, it's probably a good idea to be paying attention to China. Um, they are definitely an emerging Power on the world stage, and um, you know, in your article that I'm looking at in International Policy Digest, you talk about how in politics, if you have, uh, if in any form of politics, you got to have a message th- that's going to carry that uh, that policy forward. And you make a pretty strong case here that right now the U.S. in terms of its uh, China policy doesn't really have a good message dialed in. Where's where's the disconnect?
3: Absolutely. So, it, I titled the I titled the essay "The Missing Ingredient" because the missing ingredient in, in Washington's China policy is essentially a compelling message to rally
4: the, the
3: entire society behind the behind the different lines of effort that we have to counter China. So, give you an example. Uh, in the Biden administration's national security, they they lay out a pretty straightforward goal. They say we want a free, open, and prosperous international order. You say that to a policy nerd in Washington, and they nod their head immediately, it's intuitive. They go, yeah, of course, that makes perfect sense. If I go to rural North Carolina where my mom lives, and I say that to somebody, they're gonna say, what the hell does that have to do with me? <laughs> and, that, and that leaves more questions than answers, because if we're supposed, to, we're supposed to all be batting the same team here, well, you need to be able to communicate that language to, to the ordinary Americans that are supposed to be helping carry it out.
0: So talk to me about w- Washington's policy towards China. Um, I, I hear this from various people. Some people seem to take a more uh, suspicious or even sometimes hostile stance. Others say, no, 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 you know, it's Russia that we need to be worried about. Um, give me your best take in terms of, uh, you know, who's moving to, to fill the vacuum of power, as it were, on the world stage. Um, it seems like China's probably got uh, a lot more going for it than, than most nations at this point.
3: It certainly has a number of strengths. Uh, I think if I had to summarize America's China policy into two words, it would essentially be China bad. <laughs> there's, not, <laughs> there's very few things on uh, both sides of the political spectrum that both parties agree on, but I'd say that's probably one thing where they're in complete lockstep. And also with the American public, right? There was a Pew poll back in April that said uh, 81% of Americans also view China with a high degree of skepticism. So so I sort of read that as an opportunity. Well. That the American public and their policymakers both seem to be in universal agreement that this is a problem that needs to be addressed.
0: So, what are the kind of, of priorities that we should have toward China? What, what are the major sticking points?
3: So, if you look at if you look at some of the policies that have been laid out, uh, a lot of these lines of effort really started under the Obama administration, and so we're kind of seeing just a continuation of those. But. There's a there's a trade policy which it's probably first and foremost right maintaining that uh, maintaining that as a stabilizing factor in the relationship. There's a security policy ensuring that um, that the security situation in East Asia doesn't deteriorate into conflict. That's obviously of, of prime importance for everyone. Um, and and in the recent years, uh, it's scientific and technological policy and it's been sort of a new area with uh, with AI, 5G, uh, telecommunications. That seems to be that seems to be emerging among the top priorities now.
0: Wow, um, is it is it possible sometimes? I'm, and I'm just wondering because I'm always a little bit suspicious. Um, I think Washington does a good job of looking out for itself. Sometimes I worry that do they overstate, you know, the the threat of China, or or the, the danger posed by allowing China to have too much influence, you know, either in the economic sector or militarily or whatever. Um, are, are there those within the government in whose interest it would be to play up those kinds of things?
3: I would say humbly that they're right on the money. Um, oh. When you think about advanced technology, right, if you're a, if you're a, a an occupant of the western world right and you value liberty freedom democracy human rights and so on um giving an authoritarian superpower that is that has explicitly labeled themselves as hostile to those values is a very dangerous and precarious issue um and this isn't necessarily a new idea to try and curb them on this front uh the reagan administration implemented similar measures during the cold war to try and curb uh i believe it was russian russian oil technology oil processing technology and uh, and certain certain types of uh, computer technology as well
0: interesting now I understand that uh, China is is making its uh, presence particularly in the uh, is it the Pacific more well known with, with man-made islands and so forth and you know I I'm not looking at this with any kind of anticipation like oh boy here we go but it seems like uh, there there could be a stage being set for conflict um, in the not too distant future, and and I'm curious if that's one of the places where we're likely to see um, increased friction between the U.S. and China.
3: I'd say it's anyone's best guess, but uh, to give to give all due credit to the Biden administration, uh, one of the things that they're focusing very keenly on is is trying to ensure that that the remaining areas of cooperation between Washington and Beijing remain intact. But I definitely see. I definitely see. Uh, you know there's a, there's at least an attempt to to maintain an extended olive. but at the same time they're also preparing for a protracted conflict which is where you get the term uh strategic competition right so it seems like it seems like washington's sort of positioning itself to to uh, be able to adapt to the goldilocks scenario where things settle down or if should it's advantage.
0: wow so, it's, uh, how, how seriously do we take China as far as an economic power? Um, I have, I've heard that, well, they've got the manpower, they've got the factories, people have outsourced a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of building and so forth there, but uh, talk to me about, does China, without, without its trade relationship with the US, does that significantly uh, diminish their position economically, you know, in the, in the world?
3: It certainly doesn't help. <laughs> uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Mexico surpassed uh, China as, as our largest trade partner, so that's good oh. from a from an American economic security standpoint. Um, I personally favor maintaining the the uh, economic relationship with China just just for the sheer sake of having something to import, right? It's um, benefits to consumers as well, right? We all like going to Walmart and being able to, being able to fill up a shopping cart with cheap toothpaste and deodorant, you know.
0: So th- let's let's bring this home to the idea of you know making that message reach the average American who isn't spending time you know uh, at the State Department. What's what's the message that uh, the average American needs to understand per the U.S. government regarding China?
3: Well, think about it like this, okay? Uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party has made it pretty clear that they view the their struggle with the United States as a protracted conflict for, maybe dominance isn't the right word, but for uh, preeminence on the world stage. right? And Beijing's articulated a number of clear policies to organize their entire society behind that. So, your average Chinese citizen maintains no illusions about what the plan is, right? In the United States, we have nothing close to that. And if we're serious about competing with China for the long term, then we have to be able to match that level of commitment, and that means that each and every single American citizen is a player in this protracted struggle. And so, I think it's important, one, for the government to clearly articulate how individual Americans can contribute, and two, in bolstering enthusiasm for Americans to contribute. Right? Americans don't need to be lectured about how they should contribute to foreign policy. They need to be sold. They need to be. They need to be energized.
0: Well, and that's and that's where I'm trying to make the connection because, you know, I'm I'm very much of the the mindset. Look, I just as far as the federal government goes, yes, by all means, you know. Um, create those relationships and, and, the, the commerce with other countries and so forth. But for the most part, I kind of like to be left alone, but uh, what you're saying sounds like maybe I need to be paying a little closer attention. In other words, maybe I shouldn't outsource, ah, <laughs> oh, you know, the folks at foggy bottom will take care of it. Um, and maybe I should be paying a little closer attention myself.
3: Yeah, if the military taught me one thing, it's that bad news doesn't get better with time.
0: <laughs> so what are some good resources for people who want to to have a good feel for what's going on between the U.S. and China? Um, I know there's – look, there's, there's a lot of people out there um, – peddling some straight up fear for instance uh, you know the Chinese are coming the the guy who played Dale Gribble on uh, King of the Hill just passed away this last week and and there was a wonderful picture of him looking at a crack in his neighbor's driveway and going that's either a crack in your cement or the Chinese are making their move and I thought there's people (laughs) who believe that way
3: Well, rest in peace, Dale Gribble, for one. Uh, Two, I think for any Americans curious about U.S.-China relations, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations maintains a wonderful timeline of U.S.-China relations, going all the way, I think it goes all the way back to 1949. It's it's an excellent resource for keeping appraised of where things have gone, what the current situation is, and maybe even where they're headed.
0: Okay, and uh, as far as China, um, are they operating from a position of stability right now?
3: (laughs) I think they... I think they should like to think that.
0: <laughs> okay. Just just wondering. Again, we are, we're talking with uh, Ryan Berkaw. Uh, Ryan Burkaw rather. Uh, tell everybody where they can follow you on social media, where they can follow your writing as well.
3: Uh, you can follow me on LinkedIn. My other published works appear in the Marine Corps Gazette and the International Policy Digest.
0: All right. Ryan, thank you. Great to catch up with you.
3: Hey, thank you very much, Brian. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: welcome back this is our fourth and final segment today on moving forward with young voices hey i'm happy to welp- welcome a familiar voice back to the program that would be amanda griffiths uh, amanda you've been on here before but i'm sure some folks are uh, getting acquainted with you for the first time take a moment tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do
5: Uh, Well, first of all, it's great to be back with you, Brian, and I am a uh, PhD student, newly transferred uh, from UCLA to UW-Madison, and I am a contributor at Young Voices. I'm also, just as of this past week, one of their new Social Mobility Fellows, which is very exciting. It's a wonderful opportunity to write about entrepreneurial freedom, poverty alleviation, consumer choice. Uh, And honestly, my article that we're gonna talk about today gets at the heart of really all of those things. So I'm very excited to touch base with you and your listeners today.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, I don't get to Starbucks. I'm I'm not I'm I'm not a coffee drinker, but but I love, I love the smell. I love the culture. People like to sit and read books and so forth. But um, I never stop and really think about the workers there. And as I was looking at your article about uh, the National Labor Relations Board is standing in the way of Starbucks workers who are actually seeking relief on a couple of issues. I think really? <laughs> you, you could screw up something that that is such a, a good thing for so many people. Set the stage for us. Tell us where where does the, the the friction start between Starbucks and their employees and why why is the National Labor Relations Board getting mixed up in this?
5: Sure. So people who have followed Starbucks and who know a little bit about what's going on with them know that Starbucks has had to face some pretty serious questions and allegations. Uh, in some in some regards, have actually been found liable for unfair labor practices as a national corporation. They've been accused of bargaining in bad faith with workers united, again, nationally. There are several Starbucks stores where workers have unionized. In, in the early stages with Starbucks Workers United. Workers United is a service industry conglomerate. One of these mega unions, big labor unions that we talk about sometimes, represent a lot of different industries. Very hard to represent the discrete needs of the individual worker. But the way that this works is that if a union has been authorized to act as a group's bargaining representative, for over a year without reaching a first contract, the workers have a stopgap measure. They don't like the way that things are going. They can say, you know what? We wanna decertify this union. Maybe we want to bargain ourselves. We wanna represent ourselves. Maybe we just want to unionize with a different affiliate. And that's when you have a decertification election, theoretically, this is a very democratic process, bulwark of workplace democracy, where the workers put to a vote among themselves, do we want to decertify in this case, Workers United? Do we want to keep the union on? But here's the rub. The unions can now file what are called blocking charges if. They don't want the workers to file a decertification petition or decertify them, which you wouldn't as a business and unions are businesses. You wouldn't want to lose really or you, you wouldn't want to lose the people who are paying you. <laughs> and that's what Workers United has done. That then kicks the decision to local uh, National Labor Relations Board bureaucrats, takes the decision out of workers' hands, and the NLRB can nix that petition at any time, workers don't get to vote. NLRB says, nope, we don't want you to. We think that it's bad for you to not have this particular union. The union has filed blocking charges and we agree with the union. So ostensibly they have to have cause. The cause to which the NLRB is pointing is saying, well, Starbucks is engaging in union breaking tactics. So as a national corporation, maybe they're doing this, they're forcing the workers to file these petitions. Okay, but if Starbucks is in the wrong for denying workers agency, and and by the way, they don't know this, but if Starbucks is in the wrong for denying workers the agency, to choose their preferred method of bargaining. Why would the NLRB and Workers United be in the right for doing the exact same thing? Mm.
0: It, yeah, it's it, why, why does it always end up in some bureaucrat's hands? <laughs> I mean, it seems like problems are best solved at the lowest possible level. And for some reason, I mean, uh, maybe, the, what was the justification for getting the National Labor Relations Board involved in the first place?
5: this is a really in the weeds series of policy changes or micro revisions that have taken place with the Biden administration. Some of these policies have been on the books for a very long time. Others have sort of been tweaked slightly. But the upshot is that the NLRB now has an unprecedented amount of power. And it's a power to deny workers their rights. It's really It's being used right now as a weapon against the right to work. It's being used contrary to the ostensible, on paper, intentions of the NLRB, of labor policy, and of unions rhetoric.
0: Hey, for, for those, and this is for my own edification as well here, right to work. I think I know what that means, but I, could, would you mind defining that for me so I can make sure that I'm, I'm actually on the same page here as, as to what it, what it actually means?
5: Sure, very very broad terms, and I'm sure you're going to get a bunch of lawyers who are cringing because <laughs> this is this is very this is not a granular definition at all. But in general, you can think of right to work as saying you don't have to join a union, you don't have to be unionized to be part of this particular industry, uh, or You know, you think of, you think of schools, you don't have to be, if you have the right to work, or if you're in a right to work state, you don't have to be unionized in order to join a particular industry.
0: Okay, so some states, uh, I guess, uh, if it's not a right to work state, there are states that you do have to act- have to actually join a union to, to work within a particular vocation or something.
5: In in certain sectors, and again, this is a this is a very very broad level definition. So again, this I'm using this phrase right to work as a catch all term, but yes, uh, right to work would generally be the concept that. You can represent yourself. You can have whatever form of representation. You can be an independent contractor. Uh, you do not have to be really signed with anyone in order to make a living.
0: Okay, I appreciate that clarification. I've I have walked around for years hoping that I understood that, and and I wasn't too far off. But you've you've given me some good direction. Let's bring it back to to Starbucks. So, the the employees at Starbucks. They're, they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, to whom can they turn for, for some kind of relief?
5: Well, you would think that they would be able to turn. If anything, you'd, you'd want them to be able to turn to to agencies, honestly. This is where it would be nice to have a, a sector of the government, in fact, that was not captured by agents or by by labor unions, by the people that they are supposed to be monitoring. I mean, the NLRB, yes, they should be looking at corporations and corporations' tactics, but they should also be looking at unions' tactics. Uh, workers, honestly, this was supposed to be there out. They were supposed to be able to have this stopgap measure, this decertification petition, this decertification election. And right now, That is getting torn apart. That is getting hamstrung. So what needs to happen is we just need to revise these policies, make it so that, you know, the NLRB is either huge, they can walk and chew gum at the same time. And they've been looking at these allegations about Starbucks. They have been monitoring them. It, It stands to reason that they could go about doing that exact same thing let workers have their decertification elections, let workers file for decertification. There are many, many Starbucks locations where workers have done this. This is not an isolated event. So we're seeing a pattern. And right now, all of their, there have been two decertification petitions that have been killed. A very, very small number, I think, remains standing for this year uh, for Starbucks. What needs to happen is we need to allow the workers, the agency, to decertify or at least hold elections. The NLRB can then look into these labor tactics that Starbucks accused of violating, or these labor laws, rather.
0: Interesting. Well, and and as far as the average consumer, I guess, uh, do they continue to support their Starbucks (laughs) or do they need to apply a little economic pressure?
5: Well, I'm not going to tell anyone okay. what to do with me, where they take their buddy and buy their coffee. Maybe
0: tip a little more generously when they're, when they're picking up there their order. There
5: you go. Drink your conscience. Like Vote your conscience and drink your conscience. Okay. I
0: like it. Again, we're talking with Amanda Griffiths. She is a Young Voices contributor. And Amanda, I know you're very present on social media. I follow you on Twitter. For those who would like to do likewise, how can they find you?
5: Yes, you can find me at AjaxTheGriff on Twitter. I suppose it's X now. Is it X now? Yeah.
4: Yeah, I still call it Twitter.
5: (laughs) You can also go to my page on Young Voices and see all of my recent hits, my recent articles, and media appearances.
0: All right. Very good. Great to catch up with you once again.
5: Wonderful to talk with you, Brian. Thanks so much.